Amen, church. Please go ahead and have a seat. Welcome. So glad each and every single one of you are here this morning. Are you ready to receive the word of God? Amen. I'd actually like to do something a little bit different as we get started this morning. I want to stop and specifically pray for Israel right now. If you haven't heard, yesterday a Palestinian fundamental militant organization called Hamas launched a major attack against southern Israel. Last I looked, the death toll was in the 300s. And the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, has declared war on Hamas. This is serious. I saw a headline this morning that compared it to our 9-11. So Israel needs our prayers, and I'd like us to just stop and go to Yahweh and pray right now. So if you'll bow with me. Father God, we lift up the nation of Israel before you this morning. You have not forsaken your people. They are still your people. And we know that in your perfect time, you will gather them to yourself. And we pray for them right now that you will be working in the minds and the hearts of the leadership as they engage in this warfare against Hamas. We pray that you heal and protect the citizens affected by this attack. And we also pray that you convict and bring to salvation those responsible for this horrendous bombing. We know you are still God. You are still in control. We praise you for that, and we say all this in the great name of Jesus and all God's church said. Amen. Well, you know that phrase, the hard truth? Heard that phrase, said that phrase, this is the hard truth. You know, sometimes we we say that, When we need to be really blunt with somebody, we know we need to say something. It's not a matter of our opinion, but it's a matter of something needs to be said, and we know it's either going to hurt this person or it's going to shock this person, and sometimes we preface it and say, you know what, the hard truth is, and then we say it. I I could say something like, the hard truth is that your hopes and dreams for your life are probably not going to come true. I could say something like, the hard truth is marriage is work, it's tough, and you'll spend the rest of your life trying to figure that out. The hard truth is, the hard truth does not leave us with warm fuzzies. However, consider the alternative. If we let people believe in a lie... Lies have a way of seeming great at first, but at the end, they're going to cause much more pain than the hard truth. The truth may be hard, but the truth is good. And the truth about salvation is like that. If we let people believe lies about heaven and hell and about salvation, they might live in a kind of blissful ignorance for a while. But when they reach the end of their lives, they're going to receive an eternal shock As we look in our passage today, Jesus never held back when it came to speaking the truth about eternity. In our study through Mark, we're in chapter 10, and we're continuing this theme of Jesus' radical teaching. Over the past several weeks, 
We looked at his radical teaching on discipleship, which includes dying to self. It includes serving the least of these. It includes doing everything you can to mortify sin and keep yourselves from stumbling. Then last week, we looked at radical discipleship and how that should affect marriage and the family. And today, we come to Jesus' radical teaching on the topic of salvation. Jesus continues to confront others and his disciples as he tells them the hard truth of what it takes to follow him. So if you haven't already, please join me in Mark chapter 10. We're going to be considering considering verses 17 through 31. And right now, I want to read verses 17 through 22. So if you'll follow along as I read verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all of these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go. Sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. We're looking at three truths about salvation this morning. And here's your first point, truth number one. It is unearnable by human merit. Salvation is unearnable By human merit. In this part of the story, Jesus has just finished teaching the crowds. He's finished his discussion with the Pharisees and the disciples. He's finished his moment with the children, and he's off again. He's back on the road. He's back to the path that will lead him to Jerusalem and eventually the cross, but he doesn't get very far till we meet this new character. Now, we know this man If you've grown up in the church, you know him as the rich young ruler. But notice in Mark's gospel, he doesn't tell us that he's rich at first. We encounter him as simply a man who runs and kneels to Jesus. And that's interesting because in this culture, running was undignified. You didn't run as a grown man or as a grown woman. It was undignified. Not only does he run, though, he kneels. And he speaks in in a rather flattering way, good teacher. What does all this tell us about this man? Well, it strongly suggests that he was a man aware of his need. He felt that something was missing in his life, and he believed that Jesus knew how to get it. He runs to Jesus, kneels, and addresses him as good teacher, and then he asks this burning question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And there's a lot in that question. The following text, as we continue to read, it tells us that this man was a very moral man. He's an upstanding man. He's a religious man. He follows the law. This is not a bad guy. This is not someone that you would be cautious about or suspicious about. This is someone you could easily trust. He's a moral man. But his question reveals something of his heart. He believes eternal life that is entering the kingdom of God, going to heaven. He believes that is based on merit. What must I do? What can I accomplish for eternal life? How can I earn it? 
He even adds this word, inherit. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And that inherit means to obtain, to acquire, to come into possession. How do I get this? What great thing must I do to get the thing my heart craves? Well, in typical Jesus fashion, he doesn't answer him at first. He deals with the way the man addressed him. Look at verse 18. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Excuse me. Now, many people have questioned, what is Jesus doing here? Is Jesus insinuating that he's not good? Is Jesus insinuating that he's not God? I would say a solid no to both of those. Jesus is not insinuating that he's not good or not God. He's trying to get the man to think. He's asking him this question to get him to think. Now, Jesus was good at this, you'll remember. He was good at trying to get people to think, and that's what he's doing here. He's trying to make the man see that words of praise should be directed to no one but God. Jesus is pointing out that this man, that, that man isn't good. Man is fallen. Man is frail and in need of a good God. And that actually sets up the conversation that's to follow. Then Jesus deals with a man's question, kind of. Look at verse 19. Jesus says to him, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And so it's interesting that in the response to the man's question, Jesus gives him commandments. Jesus jumps all the way back to Exodus chapter 20 to give him commandments. In fact, he gives him the back half of the Ten Commandments, the six that deal with human interaction, murdering, adultery, stealing, lying, defrauding, which is probably a reference to coveting, and honoring your father and mother. All of these deal with human relationships. These are the horizontal commandments. Why did Jesus choose just the horizontal commandments? It appears like Jesus is still trying to get the man to think. He's still trying to penetrate the mind here. It's almost like Jesus is setting the man up, almost like Jesus wants him to answer as he does in verse 20. Why? To point out that, sure, it looks like you've got all your ducks in a row. You're moral, you're good, you're trying to do right, but you're missing something. You've got the back half of the Ten Commandments, but you're missing the front half. You're missing the commandments that have to deal with our relationship with God. You're missing the God piece. I want to be clear here because Jesus is not teaching a moralistic pathway to salvation, okay? Jesus is not saying, follow these commandments and you'll be saved. That's not what he's saying. Jesus is cleverly guiding the conversation to point out the man's deep desperate need. Look at the verse 20, how he replies. The man says, he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now stop and think about that for a second, because I think our initial response would be something like, really? You kept all these from your youth. But actually, I think he's being sincere here, outwardly. When he says, From my youth, that probably points to about age 13. That's when Jews were responsible to keep the law as an adult. And it's very likely that he's sincerely saying, outwardly, I've done this. 
It's interesting because Paul says something similar in Philippians 3.6. Paul's writing about himself, and he writes this, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul, when he was Saul, was sincere in his belief that he was blameless with regards to the law. I've kept these from my youth. Now look at Jesus' response, verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus looked at him. That phrase means to gaze intently. Probably because Jesus knew that this man was being sincere. He knew that this man's search for confirmation of eternal life was coming from a heart of sincerity. He really wanted assurance of eternal life. And Jesus, the text says, loving him, having compassion on him, Jesus challenges him. You lack one thing. Sell it all and come follow me. Now, this would have been a shocker. I think it would have been a shocker to us if someone was to tell that to you. Go sell everything you have and come follow me. But this would have been a big shocker in this day and age because in this culture, wealth was identified with God's blessing. Wealth was identified with God's blessing. In fact, that idea comes from Scripture. Proverbs 22.10 reads, The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. In Deuteronomy 28, when the people were about to enter the promised land, Moses writes, And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your livestock and in the fruit of your ground within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. It was a common belief back then that wealth was a sign of blessing from the Lord, even a sign, you could say, of acceptance from the Lord. And Scripture does seem to affirm that in some ways. However, I want to point out, just because someone's rich doesn't automatically mean God has accepted that person. And interestingly enough, Scripture also cautions us about wealth. Proverbs eleven twenty eight reads, Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous flourish as a green leaf. So let me warn you here, there's a, there's, there's a balance in the, in the scriptures concerning wealth. Having wealth can be a sign of blessing from the Lord, yes, but you see, God is more concerned with a person's righteousness. And I should note here that not having wealth is not a sign of God's cursing. I know that's a double negative, but just take it as it is. Not having wealth is not a sign of God's cursing. God will bless how God chooses to bless. Sometimes it's through wealth, sometimes it's through other means. But I want you to know that in this culture at this time, if you were rich, you were considered blessed by the Lord. So come back to our story in Mark 10, and what does Jesus say? Sell it all. Sell it all. The natural response would have been, what? Why? This is God's blessing. This is evidence of God blessing me. Why would Jesus be telling him to sell it all? Let's read verse 22, and I'm going to come back to that question. Verse 22, his response to Jesus, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. 
That word disheartened means exactly the response we would expect, shocked or even appalled. He doesn't believe his ears. What? Sell everything. Now, here's where we learn, well, the guy was likely rich because it says he had great possessions. He owned a lot, and Jesus tells him to sell it all. Why? Because we have to be poor to be saved? No, that's not what Jesus is teaching either. Jesus tells this man to go home and sell it all because this man's wealth was the thing that was blocking him from Jesus. His wealth was the thing that was blocking him from following Jesus. What are the last couple of words in verse 21? Look, Jesus says, come, follow me. That's the key to salvation. It wasn't that selling riches is the key to salvation. It's the come, follow me. That's the key to salvation. The reason Jesus to go tell him to go sell his wealth is because his wealth was what was blocking him from following Jesus. This man had a block. There was something in his life preventing him from following Jesus, and it was his stuff. He was wealthy. And his hold on his riches, or you could turn that around and say his riches hold on him, prevented him from doing the one thing that would secure his eternal life following Jesus. From the outside, this rich young man had it all. He was a good moral person. He was religious. He was rich. He was influential. He had it all from the world's perspective. And yet he knew something was miss missing, which is why he went to Jesus in the first place. And Jesus points out that all this man's religion and influence, all of it has failed to achieve the one thing that he's asking for, eternal life. And yet sadly we see that that wealth is such a block that he can't let go. He can't bear to part with it and follow Jesus this man's goodness has gotten him nowhere, and his wealth is a block in his heart, keeping him from following Jesus. Now, two things I want to point out in, by way of application. One, you cannot earn your salvation. You cannot earn your salvation Salvation, by the way, is being saved from our sins so that we can be with our Savior forever. And that is unearnable by human effort. There are so many people who are living life today and they believe that if you can do a good, enough good, then you'll be accepted by God. There are people that believe that. In fact, in 2020, the American Worldview Inventory Survey conducted by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University found that a majority of people who describe themselves as Christians, which, by the way, in America is 52%, they accept a works-based means to get to God. In other words, over half of Americans believe that you have to, in some way, earn your salvation. You have to do enough good to be able to get to heaven. And I'm here to tell you, that is just not true. It's not in the Bible. The Bible says, let's put us all on the same level here. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. We're all on the same level here. We all have offended God. 
And Ephesians 2, 8, 9 reads this, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Clear, not by works. And then Galatians 2.21 reads, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And that verse in Galatians is key. If righteousness were through the law, in other words, if we could do something to earn our salvation, there was no reason for Jesus to suffer and die. The conclusion to this is simple. You can't earn your salvation. You can't earn it. Human merit cannot achieve salvation. So friends, what are you relying on? Are you relying on your own efforts to get into heaven? Are you depending on yourself or are you depending on God's work? When you die, when you stand before Jesus, Will you be covered by his blood for the forgiveness of your sins? Or will you be fully exposed before his eyes, having tried to earn it on your own, only then to discover the truth? And it's too late. Don't depend on yourself to gain eternal life. Don't depend, as this rich young man tried to do, don't depend on your efforts. His devout religious lifestyle could not save him. No sincere moral life on our part can save us. The only thing that can save us is trust in the work that Jesus did on the cross to pay for our sins. That's what grants eternal life. It's dependence like a child. That was last week's lesson. Come to Jesus. If you're here this morning and you've never done this, come to Jesus on his terms not on yours. And if you have more questions about that, I'd be happy to talk with you after the service. I'll be around. Find me. My brothers and sisters, though, there's a lesson for us here, too. Even the best people, even those that seem to have all their ducks in a row, they have blocks when it comes to following Christ. They have barriers when it comes to following Christ. And this rich young man had a block. He had a barrier. He had an idol. He could not get past his riches. They were a block in his heart. He clung to them even more than he wanted eternal life. And we can do this even as Christians. We can have blocks that prevent us from going deeper in our spiritual walk. You may be here this morning and you have accepted Christ. Awesome that's great, but you know we can still put up blocks. We can still put up idols in our heart that prevent us from going deeper in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And these could be all kinds of things. They could be sinful things. They could be things like pornography or gossip or strife or theft or covetousness. But you know, these things can also be good things. Blocks can be good things, good things that we have taken and idolized them and made them ultimate things. Any hobby, work, money, marriage, children, romance, fame, skill, ministry. Ministry can be a block. There are many people who seek to find their identity and self-worth in ministry rather than in Christ 
alone. Christ alone. Christ at the center. Christ is the treasure. Christ is your life. That's the goal. Forget everything else and make Christ the center. That's the goal. That's what we're after. We're after that relationship with Jesus Christ that no human merit can gain. And yet, you and I are unable to do that. Our goal is Christ at the center of our life, and yet, we can't do that. Which leads me to my next point. We're talking about three truths about salvation. One, it's unearnable by human effort. Here's your second point. It's unattainable without God. It's unattainable without God. Look with me at verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. You know, it's interesting. Three times in this passage, it tells us that Jesus looked. First, he looked intently at the rich young man. Then twice, he looks at his disciples. And this is the first time, and this look is simply a looking around. It's a, ch- a change in position. He's changing from his focus to the, on the rich man to his focus on the disciples. He's looking at them. And why does he do that? He's using this as an opportunity to teach. I told you last week, Jesus was a master at taking anything and turning it into a lesson. Notice, Jesus doesn't just shrug his shoulders and walk away after being rejected by this rich man. He turns it into a teaching opportunity with his disciples. And what he says astounds them. He tells them, it's difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Now, that would astound them. And it does astound them. It shocks them. Because like I said, riches were considered a sign of God's blessing. And it was generally understood. If you were rich, God was blessing you. God accepted you. So for Jesus to make this statement, he's rocking their cultural understanding. He's giving them a charley horse between the ears. Like, what? They don't even respond. They don't say anything. They're so stunned. So Jesus says it again. And he adds... Adds a a saying that's become rather popular. He says, it's difficult to get into the kingdom of God. It's so difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's actually easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. By the way, that's not difficult. That's impossible. You ever seen a camel? And it's interesting. Jesus here is contrasting two things. He's contrasting the largest land animal in Palestine with the smallest entry point at that time. Now, some, you may have heard this. Some have suggested that Jesus is referring to a small gate that was in Jerusalem where camels had to kneel down to kind of awkwardly get through. But that's not what Jesus is referencing here. There's actually no reliable evidence that such a gate ever existed. So Jesus, again, what he's saying here, he's using hyperbole. He's exaggerating to make a point. Rich people can't get into heaven just because they're rich. It can't happen. 
And the text tells us the disciples were even more astounded after Jesus says this a second time. It says they were exceedingly astounded. The Charlie horse just doubled, completely dumbfounded to the point that they ask, well, then who can be saved? Because in their minds, if the rich can't be saved, those who are supposed to be blessed by God, then how can anyone be saved? How can anyone get into the kingdom? By the way, that's a good question. That's the right question. That's the question everyone should ask. That is the question the rich young man was asking, but he was thinking that he could do something to get into eternal life. And the disciples have actually gotten to a point where they get something. Something's clicking into place. They're asking, well, then who can be saved? That's a great question. How are we supposed to get it if there's nothing I can do to get it? And here's the third time it says Jesus looked at them. It's the same word in verse 21 when Jesus looks intently at the young man. He's focusing now on his disciples, and then he drops this on him. He says, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. With man, salvation is impossible. And we covered that in our first point. You can't earn it. But with God, all things are possible. I'm going to give you a little Greek lesson on that sentence at the end of verse 27. When it says, for all things are possible with God, what it means is all things are possible with God, just so we're clear. Our salvation is a work only by the Lord. It is unattainable without God. So here's where I want to answer the question I left you at my previous point. We need Christ at the center, but I can't make Christ the center of my life. How do I get Christ at the center of my life? God can. God does the work. See, the human heart is so bent on doing its own thing. It's so bent on behaving how it wants to behave that it can't make God the center of its life. You can't do anything to make God the center of your life. You can't put away your idols. You can't do it. God has to do that work. You can't put God in the position he needs to be, so he has to, make, he has to do the work. Somebody say, show me in Scripture. Excellent. Ezekiel 36, 26 reads, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. In other words, God has to remove the heart of stone. God has to remove the hardness. God has to remove the heart that can't accept him and give us a heart that can. God has to do that work. God changes the heart. You know, Charles Spurgeon actually preached a whole message on this verse, Ezekiel 36, 26. And at one point in his message, he says this, the heart of flesh is a boon of sovereign grace and it is always the result of divine power. No heart of stone was ever turned into flesh by accident, nor by mere providential dispensations, nor by human persuasions. God has to do the work. Now, you might say to yourself, well, don't we do something? 
I mean, don't, aren't we supposed to do something as Christians, you know? Aren't we supposed to read our Bibles and pray and we go to church and that helps us grow spiritually? Listen to me on this, okay? You can turn those spiritual disciplines into idols. You can do that. It happens. Follow me. I'm going to unpack something here. Follow me on this because I will always encourage you to read your Bibles. I will always encourage you to pray. I will always encourage you to come to church, absolutely. But if your motivation, if your thinking process is that those things are what's going to change me, if you're leaning on those things to change your heart, if you're thinking, I'm going to read my Bible, pray, and go to church, and that's what's going to change my heart, if you're doing that, then you will be spectacularly disappointed. The Pharisees put all their trust in the law. That was the Bible at the time. And they were as far from God as they could possibly be. Jesus makes the point in John 5.39. He's talking to the Pharisees and he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you will have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness of me. The Bible's not going to save you or change you. The Bible is meant to lead you to the God of the Bible. That's what it's about. It's about a relationship with Almighty God. It's not about being a good little Christian who reads their Bible, prays, and goes to church. It's all about Christ and only Christ, and only He can take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Listen to me. Read your Bibles. Don't misunderstand me here. Read your Bibles, pray to your Lord, come to church, but as a means of bringing you to God, not as an end in themselves. My wife and I, we keep our marriage covenant certificate on our dresser, and it's a precious reminder of that special day that we committed to each other. But if I were to go to my dresser and read through that marriage covenant and stare at that piece of paper all day and ignore my wife, that's not going to build my relationship with her. That wouldn't make us stronger. My relationship is with my wife. My time with her is what's going to build my marriage, and the same is true about God. You can treat spiritual disciplines the same way. You can try to trust in them and everything that I'm doing but it's not going to change your heart. They are meant to point you to God. They are meant to bring you into the very presence of Jesus so he can do the work. So what does this look like? What am I supposed to do if there's nothing I can do? Yield. Surrender. Hit the floor face first and say, God, I need you. I got nothing else. You know what we call this? We call this the gospel dance. Repent, believe, love. Repent of the ways that you've been trying to change your own heart. Believe that only Christ can do this work and that will free you to love God and love others. And the truth is, we as Christians, we go back and forth all the time. 
We try to fill our heart with things that we think are going to make us acceptable by God when all we need to do is just fall on our face before Christ and say, it's all you. Repent, believe, love. Repent, believe, love. If you have to do that 5,000 times a day, then do it 5,000 times a day. The gospel dance. Now, you might be thinking, well, that sounds like a process. That sounds like doing something, and you just told me I couldn't do anything, so what gives? It's not a process, okay? Not if we are genuinely going to the only one who can do the work that we can't do. Only Jesus can. Only Jesus does the work. And he's not, by the way, he's not a doorbuster. He's not going to force himself on you. He wants you to yield and surrender and come to him. Go to Jesus, church. Three truths about salvation. One, it's unearnable by human merit. Two, it's unattainable without God. And those are the hard truths. Those are the hard truths. But you know what? The truth is also sweet. Your last point is a sweet one, and here it is. Three truths about salvation. It has unparalleled rewards. Salvation has unparalleled rewards. Look at verse 28. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Peter speaks up. Peter, the spokesman for the disciples. We've left everything, Jesus. We've followed you. You know, at first glance, you might kind of feel like this is a, well, what's in it for us kind of statement, right? But if we look at the context, if we feel what Jesus has been saying, he's been saying some very hard things. He has rocked their cultural understanding. He has shaken their faulty theological thinking. And it's only natural to think, well, wait wait a minute. What does this mean for us? You're saying it's impossible for the rich or for anyone, that matter, to get into heaven. So what does that say about us? We want eternal life too. We've left everything. What is there hope? And Jesus says something astounding here. He says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake for the, and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. What's he saying? That for everyone who sold all, like the rich young man was unwilling to do, for the one who has left all, for the sake of following Jesus, there will be rewards unparalleled rewards, rewards unlike anything else. You want eternal life, Peter? Oh, you get that. And so much more. Now, just to clarify, Jesus is not saying here that you have to up and leave your family 
up and leave everything that you have. He's saying, those things are not your block. That Christ is the center as he should be. That's what he's saying. And I want to say this. Typically, we in America in 2023, we typically don't face excommunication from our families or, or giving up our land or homes or things like that when we come to Christ. Sometimes that does happen in America, yes. But typically in our culture, we don't see that. However, in first century Palestine and in other parts of our world today, if you embrace Christ, you could very likely lose everything that you have. You could be excommunicated by your family. You could have your house or lands taken away from you. You might have to flee for your life once you embrace Christ. That was a real threat. But what Jesus is saying here is for the one who is willing to sell or forsake all they have, they will be rewarded. And look what it says in verse 30, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time on earth while you're living and breathing, you will receive these things. How? How is that possible? If I lose everything for the sake of Christ, how is it possible that I'm going to gain a hundredfold? The church. We may lose blood relatives, but we gain true spiritual relatives through the church. Anyone here a part of a big family? Just look around you. Your big family is nothing to the brothers and sisters in Christ that are in this church, to the brothers and sisters of Christ from church past and church future. We are a part of the biggest family that has ever existed. We are adopted into the family of God. You ever wonder why relational church hurts are so painful? Because it's family. This is your reward. The church is a gift from God. He has blessed you with a true family. And by the way, that comment, as you're reading there, that comment, Jesus says you'll receive houses and lands. That's most likely a reference to the shared church community. We see this in Acts chapter 2. We see this in elsewhere. It's not a promise that God is going to give you houses and lands and prosperity. It's not a prosperity gospel thing. God will bless as God chooses how to bless, but he mainly wants to bless us through the community of the church. And I think, I think we should remember that anything that we own, be it big or small, it's a blessing from the Lord. But the point that I'm trying to make is that we are rewarded by God. Now, Jesus adds this caveat in verse 30. We receive all this now with persecutions. It's not going to be easy. The Christian life is hard. It is a painful life. It's a life of fighting sin. It's a life of getting out of our comfort zone so we can witness to the world it's a life of giving up ourselves and embracing Christ as our identity. It's a life where we will face opposition. The Christian life is hard. Jesus never sugarcoats the Christian life. He tells the hard truth. It will come with persecutions. There are sweet rewards, but they come with persecutions. However, yes, Peter, you will get eternity too. 
You will get eternity when all is put right, when sin is obliterated, when peace reigns forever. And Jesus ends with these words, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. What does that mean? There's some debate on this, but I believe, given the context, that Jesus is saying those who are first in life, who appear to have it all together, like the rich young ruler, those who are first in life will end in tragedy. But those who are last in this world, who forsook everything for Christ, will be first, will be forever rewarded in heaven. Everything is going to be flipped when Jesus returns. The prosperous and influential in this life who have failed to embrace Jesus will be forever humiliated, while those who live in humility in submission to Jesus will be forever honored. Now, what do we do with this today? Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, 19 through 21, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here's my challenge. Think eternally. Think eternally. How do I do that? Build into your true family. Build into the relationships of the church. Go deep with those around you who fight alongside you in this hard Christian life. Nothing lasts forever except people. Also, enjoy the material things God's given you. Enjoy them. He gives them to you. God blesses us with so much. We're meant to enjoy it, not to idolize it. And if something becomes an idol, maybe you need to follow Jesus' advice here and sell it. But we are able to enjoy what God gives us. Also, don't be surprised by the hardships in your life. You will experience pain in this life. And we face that by trusting him through the hard times. And keep your eye, keep your heart on what's to come. Hold loosely the things of the earth. Cling to the life beyond this one. Lastly, church, let me say this. Keep the cross firmly in your minds. Jesus took your punishment upon himself. Jesus secured eternal life for you. If that rich young man had obeyed, if he'd sold it all, if he'd left it all and followed Christ, he would have found what his soul truly hungered for. Jesus paid it all to satisfy the hunger of our souls. Eternal life is only possible because Jesus walked the path to Golgotha. Jesus took the nails for you. Jesus took the pain for you. Jesus took the shame for you. Jesus took the death for you. We couldn't do it. So he did it in our place. Keep the cross firmly fixed in your minds. What must I do to be saved? We do nothing. We lean completely and totally on the cross of Jesus Christ. 
And the more you live with the cross firmly fixed in your mind, the more you will experience gospel freedom in your life and the more you will see his work in your own heart. The hard truth is you can't earn eternal life. You can't attain eternal life. But the sweet news is Jesus already earned and attained it for you. He's promised it to you now and forever. So cling to him. Let's pray. Jesus, you did the work on the cross. You do the work in my heart and in our hearts. It's all about you. It's only about you. Jesus, thank you for the work you did on the cross. Thank you for the work you do in our lives and change our hearts of stone into flesh. Get the pebbles out. Give us an unquenchable desire for you and you alone. Help each and every one of us to fall on our face every single day and seek you, just you. Deepen our relationship with you in ways we can't even imagine. And Lord, thank you for the many, many gifts that we have right here on earth. And thank you for heaven that is to come when you will make everything right. We praise you and give you and you alone the glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.